Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. The Philacrosophy Podcast is brought to you by Oxia Time, a cool watch company focused on university-branded watches. John Canaris is the founder of Oxia Time, and he was the goalie at Penn in the late 80s who led his team to the Final Four. John is actually best known for being the goalie that Gary Gate dunked on in the Air Gate. Oxia Time makes beautiful, Swiss-made, authentic watches whose design and quality match the essence of the universities they represent. I can attest to the quality of these watches. John hooked me up with a sweet Brown University Oxia watch, and I think it's the nicest thing I own. Initially licensed with eight Ivy League schools, Oxia keeps adding new schools each month. One of the coolest things Oxia offers is custom timepieces to commemorate championships or to celebrate storied teams. Check out the UVA Lacrosse Championship watch. It's sick. Princeton did a really nice one last year as well. Oxia even did an LSU football championship watch this year. For any teams interested in creating a custom watch this season, Oxia will upgrade it at no extra cost to a championship watch if your team wins a conference or national championship next year. For players, parents, and coaches interested in custom team watches, check them out at oxiatime.com. That's A-X-I-A time.com. How's it going, everybody? Really excited to welcome Tony Holler to the Philosophy Podcast. Tony is the founder and owner of Feed the Cats, the co-owner of the football track consortium, a retired chemistry teacher of 38 years and a track coach for 40 years. Um, one of his greatest quotes is, extreme results never come from centrist thinking. I'm so fired up to have Tony, who just presented at the IMLCA convention. He is a speed guru and really excited to have you on the show. How's it going, Tony? Well, thank you so much. It's, uh, my life is really interesting these days. With the, uh, uh, I, I get to meet people like you uh, because somebody in the lacrosse world had the audacity, the, the, you know, we'll talk about non-centrist thinking, yes. the out-of-the-box thinking to have somebody come and present for them who has never held a stick before. So, you know, that's how we learn is from hearing extreme ideas, radical ideas. But uh, we, I don't think we really learn anything but confirmation bias when we hear the same shit over and over again. <laughs> so true. Now, we have a mutual friend. And um, our mutual friend is Mike Boyle, the world-renowned strength and conditioning coach, who about 18 months ago, I saw a tweet from Mike that said, timed tens have been the most impactful evolution in my programming in the last 20 years and I had to know what this was and so I had an introduction to Mike and early in the conversation he said hey I learned a lot of I learned all this from Tony Holler and I've really been waiting for 18 months to meet you can you tell us a little bit about about how that introduction between you and Mike came about yeah I started writing seven years ago um, somebody asked me to write an article for the track and field coaches association in Illinois. And I thought, yeah, you know, I could do that. And ironically, uh, uh, about two weeks after I wrote that, I read the book on writing by Stephen King. 
and is probably one of the most impactful books I've ever read. Wow. Uh, and, and from then on, I wanted to be kind of the Stephen King of track and field. And, <laughs> and, uh, and so anyway, um, I've written enough that it could fill over six books now. I've written no books, but the amount of contents out, out there, it could fill six. Wow. And um, uh, I was asked by a, a guy if I would write some for his website. And I wrote uh, 10 sprint facts that I wish everybody understood. And I was a little hyperbolic. I, I really hit, you know, like bodybuilding, weightlifting, powerlifting, meatheads pretty hard yeah. um, in, in, in that article. And instead of being offended, Michael Boyle um, called me and said I was a fellow heretic. <laughs> and, and I had to look up heretic and I found out that heretics got burnt at the stake. And, and so I didn't know if that was real good or not, but at least they were not centrist thinkers. And so he uh, invited me out to Boston. He, he flew me out and my wife and I first time to Boston and I presented all day long to his people. And, uh, and he said that the thing I said in the presentation that stood out was that nothing in the weight room uh, is as extreme as running 10 meters per second. That that is the most extreme movement you can possibly do. And in the weight room, you can approach two meters per second with a bar but if you ever see it done, it almost looks reckless. It almost looks like somebody's going to get hurt. Yeah. And, um, and so the whole idea about timing sprints and the way I present is that you can add speed to your strength program without a cost. There is no cost. Nobody's going to get hurt. And your guys are going to feel better after doing speed work than they did before. So it's, it's almost like the perfect wake up. I don't like the word warm up. So later, uh, I, I know uh, Michael presented at Altus of all places, you know, the Mecca of track and field, blah, blah, blah. And he had a slide that said, uh, for 38 years, no, for 36 years, I patiently waited for my, uh, at the train station for my ship to come in. So basically he had surrounded himself with weight room people. And it wasn't until he was exposed to this, this crazy radical from Illinois that said that we need to sprint a couple times a week, that he really changed everything he did. And he th still says it was the most impactful thing in his 38 years of coaching. It's really amazing. And it, I would have to say it's been massively impactful for me um, and my kids and the athletes I work with because I've got them doing time sprints a couple times a week. And people are like, wait, you're saying I'm gonna get faster running three or four sprints, two times a week. It sounds crazy. Now we'll get into that, but you have a great quote um, and you have the name of your uh, business is Feed the Cats. And um, you, you say, cats don't jog, cats sprint and sleep. So you, can you tell us about Feed the Cats and what it's all about <laughs> and we can get into some details? Yeah, I, I was an old school coach until I was 40. I'm a coach's kid. My dad, 47 years in basketball, 44 as a head coach at the high school and college level. So coaches, kids grow up different. Um, and, and I, even though I was thought I was smart, like everybody does, and thought I was a forward thinker and unique, like everybody does. Um, looking back, I repeated all the sins of traditional coaches throughout my first 18 years as a coach. In 1999, my son, who was a 6'2 basketball player in eighth grade, who could dunk a basketball in the eighth grade told me that he was going to play baseball in, in high school instead of running track. 
And I was so offended um, <laughs> that, that I could not even sell my son, my sport, that I, I knew I had to change some things. I wanted to attract cats, great athletes to my track program because I know that the team with the best athletes have an incredible advantage in all sports. So this attraction of great athletes, and I went to a clinic and I heard this guy named Paul Souza from Massachusetts say that sprinters are really different. They're like a different breed. They're like cats. And there's like a light bulb went off my head and I said, feed those damn cats. I want to feed those damn cats. So in 1999, I told all my sprinters that used to complain, they'd come out to practice and say, coach, do we have to run today? I go, hell yeah, you got to run. That's what we do in track. We run. Well, I told them that we ain't going to run no more. No more laps. No more jogging. No more cool downs. We're not going to do, ever do anything more than a half lap, ever. And 95% of our work is going to be less than five seconds, five seconds of maximum effort with great recovery. And I'm going to encourage you to sleep 20 hours a day because cats sleep 20 hours a day. So really what started as just a shameful way to try to attract great athletes to my program, part of my program was to write down their times every damn day. And what I found out were generic kids, my slowest kids, my youngest kids, they were the kids that improved the most. Oh, sure. It was the cats that won us three state championships. Uh, it was the cats that, that allowed us to win the four by one, the state track meet the next three consecutive years. And then we skipped a year and won it again. And then about 10 years later, we set the state record again. Um, so it was the cats that maybe were the most visible in my program, but the improvement happened from the slower guys. So what started out as an elite program for your best fast twitch athletes, became something where we, we took dogs and started to transform them into cats. And that's been really the exciting part. Now, of course, it's branched, branched out to football and rugby and Gaelic football and Australian rules football and, and uh, now lacrosse, I guess, a little bit. So it's really grown into something that I never expected it to. You can turn a dog into a cat. You mean speed is not just something you're born with? <laughs> you, you know... Um, there's a quote that, that my high school coach, uh, bless his heart, uh, used to say, he said, uh, God creates sprinters and coaches create milers. <laughs> so he took all of us and basically trained us like milers. It was ridiculous. And remember, everybody gets results. They may not be good results or they may not be as good as they should be. But my coach, uh, my sophomore, junior, and senior year, won the conference championship. I ran a 50.2 in the 400. He was proud of those results. However, I, I, I just shake my head to think how much faster I would have been if I would have been speed trained instead of slow trained. And get back to your point about genetic thing. I always say that football coaches get an A plus for loving speed. They love speed. They recruit speed. They draft speed. They, they worship speed. But then they get a C minus for maintaining speed. And they get an F for improving speed because it just never happens. If you're doing something for more than five seconds, it's not speed focused. Can you talk about that? Yep. I, I heard a guy that was a combine trainer in 2002. I'd already gone into this feed the cats thing, but I never, you know, like when you hear somebody say something simple like that, it sticks with you. 
And I, it was interesting. It was a clinic with six guys in attendance. <laughs> they advertised it all over the nation. And I was one of six guys that came to uh, an organization called D1 in Nashville, Tennessee. And, and it was a wonderful presentation. He said, guys, anything that you do for more than five seconds may have value, but it's not going to be max speed and therefore it's not going to improve speed. And that's kind of stuck with me. Interesting. Um, when you talk about rank, record, and post, Mike says something similar, which is if you're not timing yourself, it's not speed training. Mm -hmm. um, why is it so important to, to time it? Tell us why um, on multiple levels. Well, that's a great question. And, and, and it's, it's truly, if, if somebody said, you know, uh, what are the three pillars of Feed the Cats? That, that would be one of them, record, rank, and publish. I define sprinting as spiked up, uh, timed, times recorded, times ranked, times published. Now, 20 years ago, published means I would literally tape it to um, uh, plywood walls of an old beat up pole barn weight room. Um, now it's, it's a Google sheet that gets posted on Twitter along with a, a great video or a great picture that makes people want to click on that link and see how fast all my guys were. Let's just say this, that I don't care if you're Marcel Smore, the fastest guy in the history of the state of Illinois um, uh, that I coached, or you're a 320-pound lineman that doesn't start on the football team because he's too fat and slow. It doesn't matter who you are. When you get timed, you will either curse or you'll celebrate. When you see, when you see that, you realize this is important stuff. Because if you don't time somebody, it's very likely they're just running. If they're not spiked up, they're probably just running. If you do more than three reps of a sprint, you are not working on speed, you are working on sprint capacity, which never improves speed. Now, sprint capacity is good. You, we, lead, we need to learn how to repeat sprint. But we have to separate sprint capacity from speed because speed is the ability to take your body faster than it's ever been. For example, um, we say, uh, Chris Corfus and I are, are business partners and he worked with David Montgomery of the Bears. Probably not a good example because he looked like shit yesterday, but, but David had a, a magical year. And I, I attribute that magical year this year to the fact that he was running less than 21 miles per hour when Chris Corfus met him early last summer. And he left Chris Corfus running over 22 miles an hour. Wow. One mile an hour difference is something that a good sprint coach like Chris Corfus or myself, we could have 50 guys and the average will be one mile per hour improvement. And some of them would be a lot more than that. Some may be two. And you say, well, is one mile an hour significant? I think everybody has seen the DK Metcalf clip when he ran down Buda Baker, it went viral. You know, Buda Baker was a 10-7 sprinter. He was a he he was a champ, man. He was really fast. But DK Metcalf ran 22.4 miles an hour and chased him down. He DK Metcalf ran 1.4 miles per hour faster than Buda Baker. Only 1.4. So when I think that's the perfect example of the significance of raising that top speed. And so there are people out there that say, well, gee. DK Metcalf, that was just because he got like a 90 yard sprint chasing somebody. My point is 
if you can run 25 miles an hour on the track, you can run 23 miles an hour on the field. And if you can run 23 miles an hour, you can run 21 miles per hour routes all night long. So that, that absolute speed is so important that we call that speed reserve. The higher your max speed, the higher your submax speeds. It also creates endurance because if you can run 23 miles an hour, I wonder how far you could run 16 miles an hour. You could yeah. probably run that a long way because you're so efficient, you're so fast, and it's so submaximal. And so that's why speed, I think, even if you made the argument in lacrosse that nobody ever gets a top speed, I still say, who cares? Let's get them all super fast. I love it. Um, a quick question. Um, why is running your fastest so important and absolutely necessary for actual speed improvement? You know, that's such a simple question. I, I can't remember the last time I, I've been asked that. Um, and, and the best answer to that is that there's nothing else we can do that replicates that. I, I asked 20 guys, uh, I spoke two days in Dallas, Texas, or Fort Worth actually, um, over the weekend. And they're all 20 weight room centered people. And I asked them if there was any lift in the weight room that you can watch a kid lift and say, he's probably the fastest guy on the track team. And it was crickets. There's, there's not a single lift that is a key performance indicator of speed. Nothing. Now, no one says that strength is not important. Strength, yeah, we love strength. But there's nothing in the weight room that you can do. You can pick the five strongest guys in the weight room, and you could say that they're probably the five fastest guys in the school, and they never, ever are. They never are the five fastest guys. So, so because of that disconnection, then, then you go, okay, so maybe endurance work is an indicator of speed. Not even close. Matter of fact, endurance work, endurance work detrains speed. So what, getting to the exact part of your question, when you are running 10 meters per second, that's 22.4 miles an hour. If you are running that fast, your muscles are contracting and relaxing in milliseconds. Your, your contact time on the ground is less than one-tenth of a second. Elite is 0 0.08. Wow. There is no other way to practice a 0 0.08 second ground contact time by running laps. As a matter of fact, by running laps, you're making habitual long ground contact times. You are detraining a sprinter. Um, a typical fast guy that's running about 22.4 miles an hour, 10 meters a second, he is taking about four and a half strides per second. I mean, that blows me away. Four and a half strides per second. Uh, we analyzed the kid I was training this summer um, and we found out that he was putting 23 body weights, he weighed about 160, 23 body weights of force into the ground per second. Just imagine, now that, do the math, that's close to 4,000 pounds per second of actual weight. Imagine lifting 4,000 pounds in one second in the weight room. Uh, it can't be done. Yeah, It can't be done that heavy or that fast. So in sprinting, that contract relax in a millisecond, how do you ever practice that? 
every muscle that's relaxed has slack in it. Before it can produce force, the slack must be removed. Then it can produce force. It's kind of like if you're holding a rope and it was tied onto a bumper of a car. Before you could pull that car, you would have to remove the slack. Right. Then you could start pulling on that car. Well, that's the way muscles are. And the only way you learn how to remove the slack and produce force in, let's say, 0.03 seconds or something like that is by actually doing it. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Let's talk about the principles of minimal, minimum effective dose versus the grind. <laughs> One of my favorite subjects, um, Buckminster Fuller said, uh, uh, it's don't fight the existing reality. Instead, build a new model that replaces the existing reality. Well, the existing reality in all sports um, is the grind. Um, Embrace the grind. Grind, right. man. I mean, it, it, it's not only is it a, re a reality, but it's a religion. Right. Uh, and, and coaches are the greatest grinders of all time. I, I, I say that seldom do cats go into coaching. Typically, coaches are a couple steps slow, but they came early and stayed late and loved their coach and never missed a session. And this dedication to hard work and high effort is what led them into the coaching field. Um, so coaches really have a hard time understanding performance because they were never performance-based. They were grind, they were grinders, they, they were hard workers. And right now, anybody listening to this, and they're probably all grinders, are saying, well, hell yeah, we're grinders. That's what makes us good people. I mean, we, we're hard workers. We're, we're, that's what America was founded on, the Puritan work ethic. Yeah, so what's wrong with this? Is he a communist or what? I mean, so he's, people are already you know, like saying that, but that's okay, because I'm not here to make friends, even though I do make friends. But <laughs> so my new model is a performance model that says that maybe high effort and hard work and practice is interfering with performance. I, I went on a run right before I uh, came on and I, I thought of something I've never talked about in a presentation. This is a hell of a story. Um, in 07 and 08, I was the offensive coordinator here at our high school. And our quarterback was the son of an NFL tight end. 10 years in the league, he played football for Lou Holtz at Minnesota. And if you know anything, well, almost every school is still a grinder school. For, for sure it was 20, 30 years ago for Lou Holtz. Yeah. So back in the Lou Holtz days, they would get their guys up at five in the morning and run their ass off all through the season. Okay, hard work creates you know, all those wonderful things. Toughness. Toughness, mental toughness, discipline. So this father, who is one of the greatest men I've ever known, would get his son up. And of course, his son was the most genetically talented kid on our team. At the crack of dawn every day to run his ass off. And basically what he did was take a guy that should have been run 23 miles an hour and made him into a consistent 19 mile an hour guy that looked like an NFL player. I mean, he's still, you know, 6'3", 
chiseled, all that good stuff. He was a great kid. He was tough. But basically, he ruined his performance because of saying that hard work was the key to winning games. And I'm here to say that the healthiest, fastest, highest performing teams will win games. So and that's be the guess. Totally. It's different. It is different. And the thing that I think that we talked about the other day is it's, it's, it's not for a lot. It's not where like, we're talking about a lack of discipline or just like being lazy. We're talking about a prescription that is going to give you your best chance for performance, which includes rest and includes sleep. I think you said Christian McCaffrey calls rest and sleep training. It's the hardest part of his training. I, and, and this is Christian McCaffrey. I'm glad you brought him up because Brian Kula is a good friend of mine in the Denver area closer. He's the track coach at Valor high school. And, um, He's a really good friend of mine, and he has trained Christian McCaffrey in a feed the cats type of program because they did zero conditioning, zero. Now, what kind of a guy is Christian? He is an obsessive grinder, so he has to be held back from doing what his heart wants to do. And so, the hardest things that Christian had to do was things like they they do in the weight room. They do Barry Ross underground secret stuff. Um, it, it's really cool. Uh, they'll do three concentric deadlifts, heavy weight, drop it to the top. So it's lift, drop, lift, drop, lift, drop. And then they'll superset it with like pogo jumps or something, you know, like a French contrast type of thing. And then he has to sit down, has to sit down for five minutes. And Chris McCaffrey's like checking his watch and like dropping F-bombs and like, coach, I'm ready. Coach, come on, man. You're going to turn me into a, yeah, whatever. And, and, and so he, he has to be held back in order to maximize his performance. And it's so hard because it's just inside of all of us that we want to outwork the competition. I want to outperform the competition. And I, I think that is, it, it really should not be a, uh, uh, a totally paradigm shift. Right. But I'm thinking it might be, it yeah. really might be. I mean, the, the end result certainly isn't radical. It's what everybody wants. It's just how you get there. And I think it's because people don't classify rest as work and they don't, you know, they don't classify the discipline, the off the field discipline as more important than executing X number of reps, sprints, shots, throws, routes, whatever it is you want to describe as what you have to do to be great. People would rather put, have that output than, than sleep or rest output. Just, it makes more sense. It's hard to wrap your head around that. Yeah, when I was a young basketball player, um, you know, like in the early seventies, my father would tell me stories about Bill Bradley. Um, and this yeah. is back in the black and white days. Right. But Bill Bradley played at Princeton and later for the Knicks. And Bill Bradley would, would play basketball for about eight hours a day. And, and he would not leave the gym until he made 10 consecutive shots at 10 different spots on the floor. And so that was kind of like my blueprint. And what you realize is shots when you are terribly fatigued and mentally exhausted are probably not real good fundamental shots. You might be creating sloppy habits by your hard work. And so I probably would have been better off by having a 30 minute shooting session in the morning 
another 30 minutes later in the day and a lot of sleep in between than trying to copy Bill Bradley's workaholic efforts that seemed to pay off for him. Yeah, well, I remember in uh, the fall of 1983 in English class reading A Sense of Where You Are by John McPhee, which was all about Bill Bradley. And I, I did the same thing. I just, it made me want to grind. It made me want to work. And I love to grind too. I have to admit, I'm like a grinder at heart. Um, but let's talk about this a little bit more for what, what's your take on beginning of the year conditioning tests? <laughs> well, I want to hear the quote you used in the IMLCA convention. Uh, I, I, I can't really, the quote may come to me or, or if I, if it doesn't, you can, you can uh, help was, me out. I something an, like an entire it, it was something like if you do a conditioning test at the beginning of the year, I think you're an idiot. Something. Okay. Like yes. Yeah. I, 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 sometimes, sometimes I'm hyperbolic with what I say. <laughs> now it's interesting. I love it. The first coach that contacted me that night after that was, I mean, I don't know anybody in lacrosse, but he was the head um, lacrosse coach at the university of Virginia. And, um, and I looked him up and, looked to me like Virginia is a fairly powerful lacrosse school. And he's kind of like the coach K of the lacrosse world or something. So, Lars Tiffany, so anyway, by the way, well, Lars Tiffany is a head coach at Virginia. He and I were captains of the 1989 Brown team together. So I, I haven't talked to him, wow. but um, I am not surprised that he was the first guy because this guy is always searching for something and he's incredibly open-minded. And you know what, what he mentioned I mean, obviously, you know, I talked for 55 minutes and who knows what, you know, you pull out of that, but usually you pull out one or two things from a presentation that really sticks. And, th and that was what, what it was. And, and what he was talking about to me in an email was the, how scared they all were with this COVID situation and a lack of training that they were really going to emphasize a conditioning test at the start of, of the year. And he basically said, thank you for freeing us from that idea. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, thank you. You know, I mean, good. So anyway, I wrote an entire article. Uh, it was, it was really, uh, I had a football player come to me and say, coach, can you train me in the summer? I was like, sure, sure. I'll get you fast. He goes, no, I don't want to get fast. I have to survive 16 times 110, where we run one per minute. So I get about 35 seconds rest. I go, 16 times 110, what does that have to do with football? He goes, well, it's a conditioning test. Now, if I don't make it, I have to wake up at 5.30 every day until I make it. And I said, well, what happens if you don't make it like three or four days? He said, well, usually people quit. Um, and I'm like, no, I will, not, I will not train you for that. And so I started thinking how crazy that, that this kid is going to opt out of speed training and into conditioning training to condition for a conditioning test that has nothing to do with football. <laughs> and I'm like, this must be the stupidest school in the history of the world. <laughs> and so I wrote the article and found out that 98% of the schools <laughs> in America do a conditioning test that has nothing to do with the sport. And, and so I'm like, so anyway, I wrote, stop doing mindless conditioning. And I, I pretty much said why you are detraining sprinters when you are conditioning. 
And people say, yes, but they have to get into condition. And that's where we can go back to McCaffrey for a second. McCaffrey, we won't talk about him this year because he missed like the whole season, high ankle sprain and shoulder thing. Um, somebody had the audacity to say, do you think that had something to do with his feed the cats training? Shut up. I blocked that <laughs> son of a bitch. Anyway, anyway, so we go back to the year before when he did all this five second training, speed, power, uh, rest is hard work type of stuff. He only trained like four, four and a half hours a week. I mean, he was held back, but whenever you do less, you automatically achieve more. Right. I'll go, I have to say this, the, uh, the uh, Los Angeles Dodgers two years ago um, broke all their franchise records in hitting. And you would think it's because they work twice as hard. That's where our minds work. You know, they must've worked twice as hard. No, they said you could only have X amount of minutes in the batting cage. So if you only have 50 swings instead of 350, what happens to those 50 swings? Intent, excellence, um, uh, you're, you're quicker, faster, you're more right. alert. So whenever you limit the amount of time that you do anything, it's gonna be, so by limiting the amount of time of McCaffrey, his outputs were higher. Matter of fact, he couldn't get his outputs high enough in his mind because he wanted to feel that fatigue that he had felt all his life. So you would think that that guy going to the Carolina Panthers, who of course did a 300 shuttle or some dumb conditioning test, you would think that, okay, he's going to be real fast, real powerful, and going to be a great football player, which he was, but he's going to die in the conditioning test. He won the thing. He won it, which tells me, and this is totally counterintuitive, but all you coaches out there, just drink my Kool-Aid, take the leap of faith here that when you have real high outputs consistently and they are stacked together, there is an aerobic effect that happens on your body. That too many people think the only way to get aerobically fit is to go on 10 mile runs or 45 minute stadium stairs. No, those things, yes, there is an aerobic effect but there's a detraining effect to high outputs so what you want to do is train with high outputs and whatever you are missing in that training let the game itself train right your athletes when i was talking to the coaching staff we had a, a zoom with i think five, five of the coaches from the university of pennsylvania and and i told them i said i could say coach murphy you know you probably want your lacrosse team to be in, in uh, mid-season form in the first game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, everybody wants that, right? I said, maybe they won't be. Maybe you will have to allow the games to get them in, into really game condition. But by doing that, their speed and power outputs are going to be so much higher. And you're not going to have anybody hurt. And they were going to be wide-eyed and excited going into that first game. So you let the magic of the game allow you to survive that fourth quarter. And he said, hell, we may be so far ahead, the fourth quarter may not matter. I go, amen, there you go, there you go. And then when is it really important that you are in true game shape in lacrosse? He said, playoffs. I said, you got it. So you allow the game itself to get, to take care of all the things that speed and power do not deliver to you. 
and practice would be included in that definition of the game itself. There is play in practice. You're exactly right. right. And, and uh, I think you have to be very mindful, you know, like a couple of the real important things, you know, we say never let today ruin tomorrow. Right. And so the things I work with coach Murphy on was the idea of this wave like practice schedule. Bill Bowerman said he was a track coach at, uh, uh, for Prefontaine in Oregon. He yep. said, um, he said, world records never come from moderate exercise. So if you are just working hard every day in practice, that's going to be moderate exercise. You're training at 60 miles an hour and trying to go 80 in the game. So what he said was, let's have like days that we really back off and then have that wave action where we try to train at hundred miles an hour. I mean, we, we try to train at paces that we don't even run in meets. And then the next day we back off because we're a little burnt from that high day. And so, so you, you go, you go fundamental performance, fundamental performance. He said, you know, we already take off Wednesdays. There you go. You're already thinking feed the cats because that day off on Wednesday, you know, will improve your outputs on Thursday, Friday. So let's go performance day on Monday. Let's go fundamental day on Tuesday, day off Wednesday, performance day on Thursday, fundamental day on Friday. And then you got a game day on Saturday. And, and a lot of football teams are starting to go that as well. And, uh, and then of course you take out all conditioning because you never want to burn the steak. You always care about tomorrow so damn much that you just never want to burn the steak. So interesting. Um, so you don't really have a lacrosse background, so it might be hard for you to sort of uh, dream up what a performance day versus uh, a rest rest type of day. But give us an example of what it would look like in basketball, because basketball and lacrosse are quite Very similar. similar. And I would really like to hear, and I think you could probably give us a good illustration that will help us figure out how to do exactly what you're talking about. Well, first, I need to correct you on one thing. I do have a little lacrosse cred because I'm wearing this shirt sure. that, that I got from the lacrosse clinic. So, so, so <laughs> I am kind of a lacrosse insider now. Um, but no, and, and I watched you know, that, that video you sent me of, of, of free play lacrosse. The uh, pickup games of uh, 2020. Uh, I mean, I mean, I'm, I, I was checking out sticks on Amazon. You know, I, I, I want to become a part of that. I mean, especially that, that what, what you call it, small box stuff that they yeah, do. Yeah, the pickup games that we play um, are, are sort of a simulation of box lacrosse with no equipment where boys and girls of different ages can all play together and even old guys like me. And oh. it's, uh, it's the most fun. It's, you know, you talk about the whole most impactful thing in my last 20 or 30 years. This is my roots, how I learned how to play sports. And I got away from it the same way you and Mike Boyle did with following the prescriptions of smart progressions and grinding it out and teach, teach, teach. And what I've realized is the pickup stuff is an absolute miracle, similar to what you're talking about with speed. And it's fun. And it's so fun. It's so fun. And, and you know, when, when I saw that video that you sent me, um, you know, I went back to you know, I was a high school basketball player in the, in the 70s with my dad being my coach. And the 70s was a glorious time for basketball for some reason, maybe because I was in the middle of it or something. But, um, but I was in kind of a suburban high school, uh, very white. 
Um, and, and we were a very good basketball team, but, but there was a college basketball player that took me under his wing and he would drive me into the city. And the two of us uh, would go to uh, uh, playgrounds where we were the only two white guys there. And, and the only way to get chosen for a team is to impress somebody. And so he would dunk and, and I would make a couple three pointers. And, and if there wasn't a ton of guys there, we would get picked and then we played make it, take it winner stayed on. So we played our ass off to stay on, but it was three on three or, or at the most four on four and it was make it, take it. And we had to fight to stay on the, uh, on the, uh, on the court. And if you got, got beat, you may not get chosen for another game, no matter how good you are, because they don't know you. So, so it reminded me of that. And, and when you're playing half court basketball and not full court, which is really what you're talking about with lacrosse. It's like yeah. half court lacrosse. Yeah. Half court. You are tripling or quadrupling the number of shots you take. Yep. The number of collisions you have, the number of, of in play action, and you're eliminating the flowy stuff. The 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 you know the slow running up and down the field, right. the the jogging, the walking, the intermissions. It is like totally intense. So so yes, I, I I got off on that. Will you repeat the question so I can? Well, the question redirect? was, what do you do oh. if you're a lacrosse coach and you want to try to have yeah. this performance Monday, Thursday, rest Wednesday, and yeah. your practices Tuesday, Friday? Yeah, uh, and and I've written about I have two articles on basketball out there. I think I have eleven on on football. And so I've written about this and I've even have been on a podcast about soccer, which is really flowy. I mean, like, yeah, like, like nine miles of jogging and walking, <laughs> you know, and that that's a really interesting topic as well. Uh, but lacrosse is similar to basketball. At least that's what I've been told. And so I would still go performance fundamental. I would never let today ruin tomorrow. Um, but a performance practice would be, first of all, the players know it's a performance practice. I mean, it is kind of like you're wearing your game shoes today. I mean, you're going to tighten them up, baby, because it is, th this is when we're going to go. And by the way, we are not going to kill you at the end of practice. So please give us high outputs during the entire practice. So part of it's very culture, you know, uh, you know, like in coaching and, and driven by the guy really defining what today is going to be. Yeah. So what you will do, um, if you were in a basketball practice, you would have a, let's say uh, you're going to you go five 45 second periods of four on four. And you're going to play your ass off for 45 seconds. Take a minute in between. Well, you know, once again, we care about performance here. So there has to be recovery. Yep. And, and so five 45 second segments going full blast. I mean, we're, we're trying to play at 100 miles an hour, even though games are 80 miles an hour. Right. Then inside the performance practice, you have to have fundamental sessions because you cannot go performance for two hours. Right. You need. So so then, you know, as a basketball team, you maybe go to, you know, one end of the court post drills, you know, for your bigs and, and three point shooting for your guards. But it's kind of, you know, they're not, you know, like sprinting and bumping into people and all that stuff. And then maybe you go to a full court session and you're going to have 45 seconds where both teams are pressing. 
and and you know having to really move the ball and attack the basket and blah blah blah. Um, then you go back to a fundamental thing. Now compare that to a fundamental day. Fundamental days are like all the down things. It's it's still it's still lacrosse. Yeah. But you are not maximizing the uh, the number of collisions, the speed, the intensity. You're not maximizing those things because on a fundamental. I say the fundamental days are really like pregame. Yeah. Even the worst coaches back in the day, and I played for all of them, they would work our ass off all week. And then we'd have kind of an easy day before the game because that was pregame. Right. And, and they thought that that would solve all the problems that they put us through the rest of the week. And it was not true. So what I'm saying now is that you should have three pregames per week. So, so you are preparing for that high-speed day, preparing for the next high-speed day, preparing for the game. And the game is the hardest thing you do. And, oh, that's so hard for coaches. My dad used to say, we're going to work so damn hard in practice that the games will feel easy. And we all shook our head because that really sounds intuitive. Yes. That's why we practice. But I have flipped that. My new model says that the games are going to be the hardest thing we do. So we are going to condition for those games, not by a shit ton of 60 mile an hour work, but as much hundred mile an hour work as we can possibly do so that we are conditioned to play fast in the game. And then we are going to compete like hell and we're going to be healthy and we're going to love our sport so damn much that we are going to fight through the fourth quarter. Oh, by the way, that team that conditioned all week that we're playing, they're going to be tired then too. It's the difference is we're going to be tired and fast. They're going to be tired and slow. So that's the way I would sell it. And, you know, it's obviously with me not having a strong lacrosse background, uh, like I told Coach Murphy at Pennsylvania, that, that, you know, Coach, you know, you're going to have to connect some of the dots here, obviously. You know, you're, you're the lacrosse coach. All I can do is kind of be the consultant that's speaking ideas that maybe you haven't heard before. Yeah, so interesting. So in the end, we're talking about doing skill work when you're doing the fundamental stuff. And we're talking about really putting a, a cap on how much we're going to do when we're going hard, but we're going to make sure that the guys go and the girls, they go as hard as they can go. And we just give them a chance to actually do that by limiting how much they're going to do and how long the duration. Yes. And I think, let, let me bring in the, the hardest thing for football coaches, because I think lacrosse coaches are similar to football coaches, but then again, I don't know if there's anybody truly like a football coach. Football coaches are, I just absolutely love them, uh, but they are, they're, they're just football coaches. Yep. And one of the hardest thing, and there's well over a hundred programs, college and high school that are doing feed the cats now in football. Now they may, they may not advertise it as feed the cats. They will call it with its synonym sprint based football. Um, in sprint-based football, one of the hardest things for them to do is to not hustle and run between drills. Yeah. I mean, a, a football coach that sees walking on the field. Lose their minds. Well, ab absolutely. They, they will start, you know, like spittle will start coming out of their <laughs> mouths and, and veins will pop out of their neck and they, they may just die of an aneurysm right there. And, but that's the way we brought up. Yep. And so football coaches and basketball coaches and probably lacrosse coaches have always been very concerned with how the football practice looks. 
And it's very hard to tell them that, that I would rather be good than look good. <laughs> One of the things that um, Dan Casey, a good friend of mine, football coach, who's a very forward thinker, and one of the best young football coaches in the country. Um, in his football practices, he's adopted a halftime. I love that. Imagine a halftime. He said, we go seven minutes. He goes, it's the hardest thing uh, for my assistants that they ever have gone through to actually have the players sitting during a practice while the coaches group together, kind of like they would at halftime of a football game and talk about the first half of practice and make adjustments for the second half. And I would say, I don't know if Dan does this or not. I would say I would have quarter breaks too, like a three minute break. Compare that to the, the stories that I'm sure you've heard before. There, there was an, uh, a guy that told me that when he was playing football for a local powerhouse, that the, uh, that the water station was about a quarter mile away from the field. And, and uh, the coach would give him five minutes. So they literally had to sprint to the water station to get a drink and sprint back. And the seniors would get pretty damn smart. And they'd just say, F it. We don't need any damn water. Yeah. You know, so, so just picture the juxtaposition of, of taking a lazy halftime break so that you'll have a better second half of the practice compared to no water or sprint to the water of old school stuff. And you say, well, that's old school. Nobody does that anymore. My son Quinn's only 27 and he went through a five hour football practice because they lost on Friday night once. Yeah. Five hours on the field. And they thought they could do that to punish the kids for their loss because they're playing like the worst team on their schedule on Friday and they got beat on Friday. So serves them right. So it, yeah. Yeah. It deserved there. You know, I, um, one of the things you were talking about the, the video I sent you of those pickup games and, and I want to put this out there and we kind of talked about this on the phone um, early last week, but one of the things that I I'm a huge believer in is that, when you want to do fundamental stuff, if you just work on isolated skills all the time, that's fine. You'll get sharper at those particular skills, but it's, it's truly the decision-making and your ability to read and react, whether you have the ball or don't have the ball or on defense, the communication that goes along with it. It's, it's a true fluency. And to be able to have kids go out and play in, in these less contact situations allows you to essentially maximize your decision-making opportunities while also maximizing your rest while doing it. And it's actually like a brilliant model. I've been thinking for a long time, like if you just do your time sprints and play pickup, you're going to be ready to go. I agree. And there's one thing you did not mention that your system brings out is the ability to make mistakes. Yeah, true. You, when, when you make mistakes without the game lights on you or a head coach on you, you have the opportunity to learn from your mistakes. Uh, I heard Boo Schexnader, a hero of mine, you know, one of the greatest track coaches in the world. He said that he has learned more from his problems and his mistakes than he's learned from his successes. And, and I think we're all like that. Or we should be at least, but by playing in a multi-decision, multi-result, you know, like I got in 30 minutes of half-court basketball, you, you make 50 good decisions and 50 bad ones. You know, I mean, that is 
you don't get that in fundamental play. That's right. And then the other thing, and I always work with football coaches on this because football coaches are the most, are the dumbest and smartest people. Um, by their smartness comes from constantly plotting strategy. I mean, to some non-football person, if they could sit in on a three-hour football meeting, offense, defense, I mean, it is the most mind-blowing complexity you will ever hear. I, I, I think it's, it's just brilliant stuff. And it is part of what attracts coaches to football. Yep. It is truly, there's just so much strategy. It's like three-dimensional chess or something. So what I always tell football coaches is if, if your stuff is complex, your players have to think. If your players have to think, they're going to play slow. The cerebral guys are slow. Instinctual people are fast. I think of Allen Iverson in basketball, one of the most instinctual players I ever knew. Did he become instinctual because he was a deep thinker or due to, like you say, tons of fundamental practice? No, he became instinctual by playing three on three on the playgrounds or four on four or, or playing 21 or whatever. You become instinctual by habitually playing and playing hard and playing where, you know, like make it, take it. Uh, and also losers are out, you know, like new team come in. That's when you get instinctual. Uh, when we're talking about play, I don't think either one of us are talking about goofing around playing. Right. We're, we're talking about, it's play, we're talking it's, about, it's competitive. It's I mean, we're keeping score here, guys. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's going to be a winner and loser and I don't want to be the loser. Uh, so, so that just improves that instinctual nature. And, and I think all coaches have a tendency to want to overcoach details and work too much on fundamentals. And to your point, they never get enough of that play. So I think in a perfect situation, you know, you're working on fundamentals for 45 minutes in the morning when you're fresh, always do that fresh. Skill work should always be done at the freshest, most alert, awake time of the day. Um, if you're shooting free throws in basketball, don't do it after practice. You do it before practice, you do it during your lunch period. You want to work on skills when you're fresh. But I think the second part of your stuff has to be some type of free play. Totally. So interesting. Um, the last topic I want to talk about, I think is so important. And you'd say something like something about when you love it, you're obsessed. Can you elaborate on that? I, I, no. I know I butchered the quote, but uh, please tell us what, what, no. what the quote is no, and, I, and how you, how you came to it. Well, I, I've worked with, with high school kids for forever. I feel like I'm since my dad was a high school guy too. He's my history teacher, my basketball coach, my football coach. So I feel like I've always been tied to a high school and, and uh, teenagers are well known for being like the worst human beings in the world, you know, and hard on their parents and reckless and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I just loved uh, being around teenagers. I, they kept me young and immature which is something I, I, it's got me in trouble before, but, but it, I, I still like feeling young and immature. Um, but what I learned, I was given a tough lot. Um, 
I thought I was going to be a basketball coach all my life. I got fired when I was 30 as a head coach and I had four kids of my own. We couldn't move and crazy. The same board that fired me, hired me as head track coach the month before I'd been the assistant. And so, so I had to like recreate myself as a track coach and nobody gives a flying flip about track or track coaches at the high school level or any level. It's like an orphan sport. Nobody cares. Uh, total secondary citizens. So here I am teaching chemistry and coaching track. Uh, um, not exactly things that people love, but, <laughs> <laughs> but what I had to create is, you know, I, I, I had a sign in my room said, if your class was not mandatory, would they still come? And so I saw that every day. And I wish every teacher had that damn sign. If I was a principal, I'd paint that on their damn walls because most teachers don't care. And most schools don't give a crap whether kids love school or hate school. And that's why they hate school. Um, and so I want to make my classroom an island where the kids loved what they were doing. And then I had to take a sport like track where track in Illinois double sucks. I mean, it's just, I mean, our weather in Illinois, April's are worse than November. And <laughs> May's not much better sometimes. It's windy as hell, it's wet, it's cold. And so I had to try to make chemistry and track into something kids love because I knew that kids are good at what they like and they're obsessed with what they love. Uh, people ask me, what, 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 or I ask other people, I said, what are the kids best at? And they're like, uh, I go, cell phones. They're great at them. Why? They love their cell phone. You know how many courses they had on cell phone activities? Zero. They are obsessed. And so they really get great at what they really like to do. So if we could make school into something more likable, and by the way, chemistry can't always be likable. I'm not always throwing flames and exploding things even though we did that a lot. Um, uh, there were times when we, we had to learn electron configurations and I would apologize to my kids. I said, I'm sorry, we need to go through this crap for the next four days. I promise I'll blow something up on Friday. <laughs> and I do, this, I do the same thing with my track teams. I say, okay, all we're gonna do is work on speed and power. That's it, all off season. We are never going to do endurance work, never more, anything more than five seconds. We'd go, coach, how are we ever going to learn how to run, uh, run the 400? That comes in season. We're, we're going to take care of that in season. And so we get in season. Okay, guys, remember I said we need to take care of this. We have to do a lactate workout today. We're going to do three 200s with only three minutes rest, and you're going to spike up and go. They said, that doesn't sound very hard. I said, well, you don't know what you're talking about then because this is going to suck. And I'm going to apologize to you now, but because every other team works 10 times harder than we do, like 10 times harder, we have to bring it. We have to man up today. And they man up and they kill themselves. And so what, what I think is that, is that that love of our sport and that like of what we're doing, um, that love motivates us. And I, I don't think coaches and for sure teachers ever tap that enough. Wow. So all I can say is, wow, it's, uh, it's inspirational to listen to that. And this whole, pod, this whole podcast has been incredible, Tony. Thank you so much for coming on. And I really hope that we can engage and do some more stuff together. And uh, 
I will be studying uh, what you preach. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I had a blast. And um, yeah, uh, that hour went really fast. It did. Awesome stuff, man. Thank you.